Hello and welcome to the Screen Chronicles. I'm Colby. With me as always is Steve. And today we're joined by a very special guest. He has worked on series such as Doctor Who and Killing Eve, amongst many others. He was the director of photography for nine episodes between seasons four and five of The Last Kingdom. And he's a member of the British Society of Cinematographers. Tim Palmer, welcome to the Screen Chronicles. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Colby. It's a privilege to be in your company. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Tim. We're huge fans of The Last Kingdom is how we, we know your work originally. And uh, the, the Last Kingdom has always had a great look and feel to it. And, and a lot of the episodes you worked on, I think, were really unique looking as well. Oh, what can I say? Thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been a show that's really been very close to my heart. And I feel very lucky to have been involved in it for such a long time. And it's up a tremendous amount of creative opportunities through every episode all the directors I've worked with the series that I've worked on the looks the designer and um, the production the, the company production company are very generous with the uh, creative freedom that they allow their heads of department so um, I've not had any impediments to any stylistic direction I want to take the show in at all it's been uh, oh, it's very been, cool been a lot of fun when I came in on series four, Chas Baines, who is the lead mm. DP on series one to three, did such a magnificent job. I mean, he really set the tone of the show and the look of it. And I, I was just basically following in his footsteps. But I did have, uh, I did have a mandate not to change it, but just to sort of give it a different, I suppose, a different feel in a way, because the series alternate in terms of the times of year they're set in. Sure. So, the last series that Chaz did was a winter series, and the first series that I did was a summer series. So that immediately was going to change the way it looked. And then the last series I did, Series 5, was a winter series. So right. I kind of enjoy all the seasons with my input and my work. <laughs> Before we dig into some more of the, the juicy details of what you did, uh, a lot of our listeners and, and people watching our fans of Last Kingdom. We have spoken to uh, a DOP before. You mentioned Chaz Bain, but could you tell us a little bit about what a DOP, a director of photography, what what you do for the show for the people listening? Okay. Well, the director of photography is yeah, there's so many ways to describe it. Ultimately, is manages is in charge of the look of the show and as an mm -hmm. overall supervisor for want of a better word of the, the lighting and the camera work and decides basically how the pictures are going to look and how you expose the negative or digital signal etc whatever you want to call it these days how you choose to translate what you see in front of you in the real world onto what people are going to see on their screen so all those visual decisions uh, the director of photography's responsibility and you work very closely with the director and the production designer because the production designer builds the sets that you have to photograph so often you're you're well all the time actually especially on the last kingdom i'm involved with the designer at a ver very early stage looking at models and discussing what lenses we're going to be using and angles of view so that he can build the sets to suit the lens choices we're going to make and uh, he can build in the light a lot of the practical lighting into the sets that I think are going to help with the overall photographability of the set in terms sure. of 
where the fires are going to be, where the wall sconces, where the candles are, how high the ceilings will be in order not to see the set, where the windows, all those sorts of decisions uh, uh, are done in collaboration with the designer, from my point of view. And then I'm the director's right-hand man, really. He, he or she will have the, you know, the overall idea of the, the show, the way he or she wants it to look and how they want to photograph it. And then it's my job to, to translate those ideas and that vision into something real that, you know, the audiences will be able to physically see. Yeah, cool. And those meetings you have about the set design, does that take place very early on in the process? It does. It takes it does take place very because the sets take a long time to build. It could be sort of two months, two months before we get to photographing the set. Those preliminary design decisions are, are being made because they're, they're certainly on the Last Kingdom. The sets are so substantial. Dominic, yeah, um, Dominic Hyman, the designer, just builds. You know, he builds, he builds real buildings. It's not buildings where you does can a fantastic take, job yeah take a wall out because you want to get the camera there or it, once it's oh, okay. up that's it so you know it has to be exactly right so is there more pressure then in, in sort of the last kingdom scenario to make those decisions early on knowing that you might not have flexibility later i think so yes very much so i mean case in point was on series four when there was the big um sailing to bebenberg where an utrecht and the gang are on the boat they leave they sail up the coast and, and they go the seagate the bebenberg seagate right. and that was an enormous build on the um, in a tank in fort studios in budapest a tank is a, a gigantic swimming pool basically right about an acre. That you can fit a Viking ship into. Exactly. <laughs> Two Viking ships in it. Plus all the support boats and all the divers and saved everything else. We planned that really to the nth degree because there was a lot of visual effects with big blue screens. You know, we had scale models of the set that I put lenses, sort of miniature cameras with lenses on. So we could mm -hmm. see exactly what the camera was going to see from the water, which is quite tricky because you're sort of low, relatively low. Right. You can't fly up. So... You know, you had to build the sets to certain elevations and, and widths. And then when we were inside the Seagate looking out, knowing exactly where the jetties were going to be situated so you get the points of view from the soldiers. So that that had to be planned in, in great detail. And we spent many weeks pushing little balsa wood models around a, a, a set to get that right. And it worked, you know, all that planning worked fine because... Once we were, we were on that set for about a week, I think, filming, and it went like pop. Every shot just slotted in perfectly. We never had to really think about anything once we got going because it all, it all worked. We talked with Chaz Bain again, who you mentioned before, and he mentioned like when they started, they used a lot of like natural lighting and, and elements like that. What was your sort of approach when you came in and you started taking over for season four and five? I mean, very, very similar, you know, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right, right. It is a very naturalistic show. It's a period film. You know, the only lighting is daylight, moonlight and firelight. Mm -hmm. Really, that's that's all that existed. So you have to honor that principle. I mean, of course, we had a lot of lighting because, right. you know, you need to light a lot for those big sets, the studio sets, the Great Hall and Winchester is a is an enormous set with big windows. So you you got to put light through the windows, but the light, it's only ever got to emulate 
daylight, whether it's sunny or overcast or, or, or moonlight. There's quite a lot of lighting, but it's always as invisible and naturalistic as possible because with all the firelight, you always have to supplement candlelight and firelight right. with a bit of additional stuff. Otherwise, it can look too, um, I mean, I don't know how sort of technical we want to get, but if you, if you can, with sort of modern cameras, you can expose just with the candlelight and the firelight and you get a, a, a you yeah. know, you get a good exposure with the, the high-speed cameras, but it makes the flames really burn out. Personally, I, I, I think it looks better when you're shooting stuff with candles and fires that there's color in the flames. You know, you still yeah. feel that richness and the color, which means you have to you sort of have to underexpose a little bit and then bring in a little bit of supplementary lighting to get the light on the faces to simulate the light right. candles. I mean, I think when I look back at a lot of the interior scenes, they feel very warm and rich and you're really going to get a sense of that deep orange yeah. candle light. That's because I actually did quite a bit of lighting to, to get that look. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I especially felt that warm um, sort of feeling in Winchester, in, in the Palace of Winchester a lot. And I always thought about, too, when the light is sort of coming through the windows, it does look really natural. And I'd think to myself, like, is this actually daylight that they're using? Or probably not. It's probably like some <laughs> sort of light putting in. But it, it looks like it could be daylight. No, it's um, so you've done a really good job of that. Well, thank you. No, it's and I had a great, you know, fantastic lighting team. But you know, it's it. I quite enjoy those Winchester sets because you, that, especially that great hall, because it, you have an excuse to do something different every time you go in there. You can, you can do sort of shafts of sunlight. You can make it mm. very gloomy and overcast. You can do sort of shafts of moonlight with sort of smoke effects and beams, or you can make yeah. it very soft. And and the set lends itself to experimentation and I, I, I mean that's just me I get bored quite quickly so if I'm on the same set I try and do something different every time rather than kind of cool. slip into a comfort comfort zone and just stick with what I know works <laughs> and we've seen and we've seen other shows of the same sort of time period too where the lighting um, doesn't feel as natural or there'll be like a great hall scene and it's almost like it's lit up by LED lights or something in the ceiling, which, yeah. you know, The Last Kingdom never felt like that, which is great. But is it difficult when you're not using natural light to simulate natural light? Well, it's interesting that it's an interesting point that you bring up there. And because let's talk about the Great Hall set in Winchester, because when I started on series four, literally the first day I was on set in pre-production, I, I went into that Great Hall set and it's a huge room. Right. But it had no it had no ceiling. It was a studio set without a ceiling. So all the lighting could be, you know, brought in from above if you needed to. I looked at it and I the first thing I said is, you know, we're gonna see off the top of the set the moment the camera gets down low. It's such a huge set that if you want to have kind of graphic low angles, which I knew that the director liked we were going to be off the set, you know, a bit like if you can see on my um, Zoom at the moment, you know, you see the ceiling up there. That's what it, you know, there would have been a black hole. So what right. was happening in previous series is that they were, they were having to kind of keep the camera always up at that height, not, not to see off the ceiling. Uh, I know the director wanted to be down here. It's a kind of a personal style thing I, I i like sets to be like a real location so i i can't i don't like 
studio sets with no ceiling. I like a hard ceiling across the set so that you can shoot anywhere you want. It's a sort of Stanley Kubrick. If you look at all of his movies, yeah. he never, he, he always has a real ceiling in his sets. And and I think it just, it, it immediately imparts a sense of authenticity to the set and it makes it feel like yeah. a real place. So I said to Dominic, the designer, like that I'd, I'd love to have a, a hard ceiling on this big set and he kind of fired his brow because he knew it was going to be a big cost. Right. But I took a lot of pictures and I did some sort of test shots of the angles that we wanted without the ceiling. And it, he and the production company immediately could see the, the, the necessity for that. So they put in that big ceiling and it just, it transformed the set because suddenly it became, it felt like a really real space where mm. You could put the camera anywhere you wanted and shoot any which way you like, and you never had to worry about seeing something that you didn't want to see. It, it opened up the opportunity for really, really graphic low angle shots where you're tracking sideways along people coming in and out and the king and you see the ceiling behind right. it. So in terms of naturalism, it actually made it a lot easier because there are no choices. You don't have the option to light from above. So you can't oh, okay. from above. So you have to light through the windows and only through the windows. So if you know what you're doing, then it's automatically just going to look very real because that's the way the lighting would have been. Has there ever been any instances where because of the logistics of sets or, or, or just maybe like an idea that, it just, when you go to set and you try it out, it just doesn't work. Is there anything that happens like that? I'm sure it does. Usually in small spaces, it's always in yeah. like tiny spaces that you get stuck. It's mainly because it's not from, I've never, I've never been stuck with lighting, but it's often in small spaces, you get stuck with the camera because mm. you can't get back far enough you know you always end up with the back of the camera sort of wedged into walls and it can make the shot less sort of gratifying because you end up having to go closer on a much wider lens than you might want to do to kind of take action in it just becomes a question of um sort of montage really and and, and working okay. on the shots but as i said yeah small small sets are always fiddlier and take longer to shoot and get the shots right in than, than a big set. But lighting wise, I mean, yes, what can I say? You know, it's going to happen. So you're prepared for it, but it still happens. Nevertheless, is that when you're on a, in a sort of exterior, sort of a daylight set that's built, that's tied into like an exterior location. So mm -hmm. for example, the, say the effort, effort, which, big set yeah. in series five, the York set. So that was built to kind of lead right into the big courtyard and it had windows on one side and windows on the other side. When you've got scenes, kind of quite dark scenes inside looking towards mm -hmm. the exterior, which is south facing, when the sun is out, it's extremely bright outside um, and it's dark inside. So it's quite, you know, it's, it, it can be difficult to control the contrast you know, usually I could, you know, I could put big nets outside the door, but then if there's soldiers and horses walking backwards and forwards, obviously you can't do that. So you have to find ways to either kind of, uh, it's difficult to control the sun. So ultimately it comes down to finding ways to scheduling the day so that sure. you're, you're only looking in certain directions when you know the light is going to be right. But inevitably 
that can all go reels right. of cotton sometime and you you're stuck with it so you're just that's it really but i find you know occasionally when things like that happen the audience doesn't i'm far more bothered by it than the audience <laughs> right so. right because we don't notice you don't really notice. <laughs> you mentioned big sets and, and small sets and and uh, a lot of the episodes you did you know you have you go from big open spaces battles and and duels outside to the political scenes that are that are indoors and and in those tighter spaces uh what yeah. what what's the i guess the big uh difference you have between those and, and what do you prefer what do you prefer between those sort of things i mean the big battles are a very sort of mechanical in a way there's not much not much emotion there's not a great deal of subtlety to the photography and the lighting and the camera work it's just big busy shots you know put as many cameras as you can onto a onto a scene that's been choreographed by a stunt coordinator where this person does that that person does that this camera's here that camera's there right that mm. bit's done let's get on to the next bit you know when you're actually filming it it seems almost like play school sometimes you think it's like kids in a playground like with their wooden swords <laughs> just hammering away at each other but obviously when you see it all cut together it's incredibly visceral and powerful totally. and uh, and brutal. Yeah. So in terms of the actual physical filming, you know, as a cinematographer who's sort of creating drama with lighting and, and sort of considered camera moves and human interest and characterization, you know, I, I really enjoy the, the sort of the political scheming and machinations of big group scenes with actors, because you kind of really can get under the skin, uh, as a cinematographer, you know, the battle scenes, I enjoy it because it's a lot of real, really challenging technical problem solving because okay. changing light all the time and you're working out how to make sure the scenes match consistency and how the lighting can be consistent on a scene that's going to last for two or three minutes on the screen, but that will take you, you know, potentially, you know, two to three weeks to film over a right. period of time. And, and you've got sunny days, cloudy days, you've got days where the, the you know, things don't go to plan. So you end up filming at the end of the day when you're losing the light. So you're having to light things in and create daylight when it's dark. So it's very, it's good fun technically to do that. But I think emotionally, I really enjoy the drama of the sort of the, the talking scenes. <laughs> Gotcha. Now, now, before you became involved in The Last Kingdom, were you already watching the show or were you a fan of the show at all? Yes, because I, I've worked a lot with, um, I worked a lot with John East, who's one of okay. the Last Kingdom's staple of top directors. We did Killing oh, yeah. Eve together and medical drama called Critical. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was when, when we were doing Critical that he was going on to do his first stint on The Last Kingdom. So we talked a lot about it then and he would always report back to me. And then when we did Killing Eve, he was off to do it again. So I've always, I've certainly always watched his episodes because I like to see how, you know, how he handles different types of material. So yes, I was familiar with it. Great. And then how did you end up becoming involved in it? The lead director of series four was Ed Bazalgette, who I'd worked with on a television drama quite a few years previously and um you know he must have thought that I might be a good fit <laughs> you never know how these things work I don't know right. I'd not worked with Carnival 
pictures before. I, I, I hadn't worked with a production company, so I was new to them. So I think, yes, I think it was Ed, it was Ed that must have sort of pushed for me and, and got me on board. So, cool. but cool. You know, as I say, you... you never know, you know, what goes on in those back rooms. Had you ever worked on a show like The Last Kingdom before? No, I had. No, I had. No, because I've done, I did Strike Back, you know, that HBO Cinemax I mean, it's mm -hmm. completely different, but it's about the sort of British SAS equivalent of a kind of Navy SEAL squad that go off around the world, saving the world from terrorist attacks. And so there was a lot right. of that. And we filmed that in Malaysia. So that was a kind of a very action-centric gotcha. series, but modern, you know, it was all gunfire and explosions. But, you know, in terms of action, yes, that that's the closest that I'd come to something like The Last Kingdom. Generally, I, I've sort of tended to work on much more sort of intimate dramas, sure. a lot of police procedurals, a lot of detective shows, sort of psychological thrillers and dramas. So it was a big, good, really good break for me to kind of get onto something with such, you know, with, with action and sets on, on such a large scale. And it was actually surprisingly easy because, yeah. you know, people, people involved were so good that, you know, it didn't take long to get with the program <laughs> yeah yeah when, when you are working on a show too like the, the last game when you're going on where it's a it's a season and then there's another dop taking over and those sorts of things do you all sort of work with the story too and and try and imagine like how the story's gonna go and decide how that's gonna influence how you go because i know like the first episode of season four it was a really lighthearted kind of episode it was like a reintroduction everyone again and it felt very sunny and it was like bright. And as yeah, the season it goes, in summer. it was a summer. Yeah, summer. it was a summer shoot that one. Yeah. So those sorts of decisions are very much made by the director and the producers in terms of okay. continuity of the script and the story. I mean, I, yeah. I would never ask a, a director of photography that's following on from me to do exactly what I did. I'd always say, you know, just do your own thing because you're you, but it, it's the show. So it still has to look like mm -hmm. the show. So, but do it in your own way. And in the same way, I'm, you know, when I come in and follow on from someone else, I'll do my own thing, but it'll still look like the show. The audience won't question, suddenly think that you're shooting a musical as opposed to a you know, film noir, <laughs> black and white thing. So I did sort of bring in some kind of color color ideas into season four. I was using, I kind of introduced a camera filter that I've been using for a long time. Uh, it's called a storm blue filter. It's like a cyan type filter. And I used it on Killing Eve as well because it kind of it gave exactly the right kind of pattern to the show without having to go and create a, any sort of color color effects in post-production. And it, what it does is it, it just puts a sort of subtle amount of blue into the shadows, but it keeps the skin tones looking quite fresh and natural, but it yeah. immediately gives a, an interesting kind of split toning to the color of the negative. I'm just calling it the negative, just as a generic term, because I never know whether to say digital signal or digital file, and so just say the negative for sake of argument. Gotcha. So I introduced that, and I did a lot of tests and ran them by um, the producers at Carnival and showed them mm -hmm. how it would look, and they really liked it. So I introduced cool. that at the beginning of season four, and all the other DPs used that filter on their episodes too. And it was the same on season five as well. 
and they all loved it. You know, they thought, God, this is great. You know, I've never used this filter before, but it looks, it suddenly looks like it just gives a really beautiful period look to, especially, okay. you know, especially to the day exteriors and in winter, because it makes the winter feel really kind of wintry, but it, it keeps the warmth of that low winter sunlight on the skin. So it just, it's a really quite a magical look. So basically that's the only sort of artistic stamp that I made on the series that I asked the other DPs to observe. <laughs> and because it, it, it made the opening episodes, it gave them such a distinctive look that if you hadn't used that filter, mm -hmm. I know for a fact that they would have asked in post-production to try and emulate that look in the grade. And right. it'll never look the same as if you, you know, when you can get it in camera, so. And is it critical to like meet with like the next DOP, for example, like end of episode two is a cliffhanger in season four. And then again, end of episode three, there's a scene that's sort of cut to go to episode four, where I think you guys sort of change. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it is, it is important. I mean, because there are certain, there are always certain discussions that happen at that point, you know, when there is, it's almost when the same scene it's the same scene, right? It's over from one block to another block. Sometimes, actually, the director from the... So, for example, there was discussions whether the Andy Hay, who was the block two and three director, whether he would actually direct the scenes from episode four that directly continue on because it's all part of the same scene, or whether the block four director would have come in and direct the end of episode scene from block three because it's all part right. of the same thing. So sometimes that does happen. In this case, it didn't. We just literally, we, we filmed us, where was it? I can't remember his name now. Uh, the guy who put, the brother of um, Sig Trigger's brother, who puts his hand oh, in. Oh, oh Rongvalder in episode Rongvalder. Three. That's right. <laughs> so that scene where he kind of does the trial and he puts his hand in the hands in the vat of boiling water and picks up the iron bar. Oh, yeah. So, you know, my episodes that I was doing, we filmed up to the point where he holds it up out oh, yeah. and takes his hands out of the water. And then Paul Wilmshurst and Ashley Rowe, Paul, the director, and Ashley, the DP on episodes four onwards, then they shot the, you know, the continuation. So essentially sure. we, we shot until midday mm -hmm. and then Andy and I went off to shoot some other scenes on another part of the set and Paul and Ashley came in and because all the sets were there and even though it was you know a week or two before Paul's official start to his filming but because everything was there they brought him in to kind of direct the rest of that his his part of the scene and actually he ended up shooting quite a few establishing shots so you know there's a little bit of there's a bit of um you know there's sometimes there's like overlap sort of crossovers there sure sure but I think you know looking at it you would, I don't think you would think that it was two different directors and two different DPs no. shooting that scene. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In either case that I brought up, I was surprised that it was a different director and different or um, DOP going into um, the next scene because it just feels like that would have all been shot at once. Yeah. And then like they would have just clipped it or something. But speaking of that trial scene, though, I love the shot when Wrongvolder lifts the bar. Yeah, where the camera sort of comes out of the water with the bar and sort of focuses on him from below. Yeah, that was, uh, well, that, that was, was my. Cool. That was, I just did. I just did that on a GoPro. 
Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I had the camera in the water. Right. Just sort of basically just, I couldn't see, you know, you can't monitor it or anything. I just kind of right. guessed what the frame was. And as he brought his hands up, I brought the camera up and guessed what the frame was. Uh, it worked well. <laughs> I guess you know, that's exactly. where your skill comes in. That's well, when you kind of when you know cameras and lenses so well, you can you can often just see the shot without having to look through the camera. You you always know okay. between it being like that or being like that, just knowing the frame. I mean, I remember once doing a shooting a commercial. We were on a hot head, you know, a remote head, and it's the camera started looking down into a into a an open grave and then mm. as it, it it booms up and spirals around and then ends up down looking at the the mourners on the side of the grave just as the camera was starting to boom up and i was operating a remotely on the wheels just as the camera started to boom up the video cut out they didn't cut the camera they just kept going and just by kind of looking at where the camera was and just feeling uh. what was going on i Kind of continued the shot, and the framing actually was perfect from cool. start to finish. It was probably the best take, actually. So, <laughs> oh, oh <it's> all... <laughs> you just got to use your natural instinct. Uh, it was like a bit of a, 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 it was a bit of a Jedi moment. That I think. Yeah. Hey, cool. <laughs> when you're out with family and friends, are they? Are you like the designated picture taker? Then, or like, oh, Tim's Tim's got us here. Well, I try not to be. I kind of. <laughs> But it, it does end up being that way sometimes. <laughs> Colby just sent me a, a, a picture yesterday of uh, the the scene you did with Ethelred in it was season four, uh, episode five, when he's he's dying and, and getting taken care of, and and how you had you had used another painting to sort of influence uh, how the the look of the shot went with that, and uh, yeah, yeah. How do you sort of plan that out then, I guess? Or, or do you, are you there that day and you're like, oh, this would be great. No, 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 no. I it took a lot of, there was a lot of thought that went into that. Because mm. sort of emotionally, I sort of had a feeling that, I had a feeling that I wanted it to feel very, almost spotlit, that scene. Mm. It was such a kind of an ethereal moment, especially oh. with um, Ethel Flaird and you know by his bedside and the way he mm. you know he was almost like a kind of pieta dying there you know that awful long slow death and it just felt like the the focus became more and more intense on him as he was dying it wasn't just like taking to his bed closing his eyes and off he goes it was just right. it was a horrible horrible drawn out moment and and i just thought i just wanted visually to kind of enhance that at every stage and I felt like well with the lighting you could get it could just become more and more intense as the inevitable moment approached. Mm. I mean Caravaggio is a very sort of common cinematographer's reference point. Okay. So in the flagellation there is that moment where he's being lifted up out of his bed and he's in that shaft of light from the window and I just thought well that is the picture I had in my head when I was trying to conceive of this moment so I lit I basically just lit it that way <laughs> I just use yeah. I just use little kind of little tiny little spotlights hidden in the ceiling to look like um shafts of daylight coming in or or yeah. I can't, actually it was a night scene so moon you know moon it's sometimes yeah, sure. sometimes it doesn't really matter it's kind of doesn't really matter what the light is as long as it 
is emotionally meaningful yeah. but it became very focused on 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 him and it let it because it's unusual you know usually the you know the convention certainly with most of the work that i do on the last kingdom and, and most of the work that's done these days is to like quite very softly but in a very controlled way it's mm -hmm. become a sort of visual signature style for the over the last 10 years and you know using small hard sources is quite old-fashioned really now okay. <laughs> that's what i did and what it uh, it just uh, it kind of brought back a lot of the kind of the ways that i used you know the way i grew up lighting before we had those you know all those big okay. soft led lights we had to use just tungsten and and then really shake the light but it, it you know, reminded me about how lovely it is to work that way because you know you don't you don't have to actually you don't have to work that hard to make the shadows fall off and go dark whereas with digital usually it's so difficult to actually make things go dark because the camera sees everywhere uh, it's just he's everything all the time so you're constantly just cutting 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 the light to try and keep some shape to the lighting but actually when you just use small hard sources well bingo it's there done <laughs> i'd say that that whole episode episode five it was uh for me story-wise it was like it was a little bit slower but as far as visually i remember that one being just visually interesting like oh yeah when, when all the elder yeah. men are talking well, at the table and and Ethelred, when he's when he's getting killed, like twisted his oh head to death. From, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, and then like Edith, when she's like looking through and she's seeing this this yes. murder happening. That's right. She's looking through. Well, we I, I'll send you some pictures because that was interesting the way we shot that. Um, and I'm glad you respond to that in that way, because I felt the mm -hmm. same from a kind of lighting and drama point of view. It really it was extremely rewarding and it felt like we could combine all the elements of lighting and camera work to, to tell a very emotional, powerful story. And the same, I felt the same with episodes seven and eight in series five, which were again, you know, probably the big action, the only big action set piece scene was Breeder's death. Yeah, right. Breeder versus Zutra, yeah. All, apart from that, it was all quite um, interior. And, and that whole last 10 minutes of episode date where they're all facing oh. off against the king that was a 10 minute yeah. scene that and then you know you read it on the page and you think God, how you know how are you going to make that interesting for the audience visually so that it kind of keeps them going but i you know it went by really quickly i thought it was, I thought it, that was a great scene it didn't it didn't hang but anyway going back to that uh series five scene with uh ethelred's death i mean that it was Something I'd started with John East when we did that medical drama, Critical, uh, I introduced the use of a, a periscope lens, like a probe periscope lens, uh, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's, this is one by, it's by Optics. It's a very long optic and, it, and you can mm -hmm. also have it so it's in a kind of a dog leg configuration. Okay. So, and it focuses very close. You can get the lens right up to your eyeball and, and focus on, on your eyelashes from there. Okay, but it enables you to get the camera into places that you could never, can't ever get a normal camera because it's just too big and bulky. You got the map box oh, and the lenses. Okay. I discussed this with Andy, the director. I said, look, we can use this lens really creatively for that whole Ethelred scene because it means you know we can get right, you know, for example, when Ethelred is being killed, you know, when puts that yeah, let's get like his tourniquet there. twisted yeah. to death. Oh. I could get that lens on a periscope literally right under the actor's 
chin. So you could look right up across his ear and across the tourniquet up to mm. the Airwolf. Right. Yeah, Blackley, who was Airwolf, right? And then, and then when he's finally dead and his head locks over like that, yeah. who could pull focus to his eye, which was only that far from yes. the lens. And it was a great shot, that. And yeah, it, awesome shot. And awesome. Uh, and that's how we did it uh, with that lens. And the yeah. same with the you know the Edith shot that you um, talked about. I used the lens in its probe mode, so it's like straight mode, and okay. it enabled us to kind of track right in and right in and right in, right through those little um, yes. gaps, the, kind of the, yeah, the gaps, yeah, yeah, right into that big close up of her eye, which again with a conventional camera setup, you could only, you'd only ever be able to get the camera that, you know, maybe that far away from her. But this way we could get right into, right into there and start the shot sort of from right over there. So in the audience, you're not thinking about it, but what it, what it means kind of narratively is that it puts you, it puts the viewer right, so right into the sort of the headspace and the totally mental anguish of the, whoever the protagonist is at that point, because you can get right. so close to somebody that you're, you're, you really, the camera is that person. Right, right. Uh, that was our sort of philosophy behind the shooting of that whole sequence. That's it was a very uncomfortable scene when he's getting his head twisted to death. Like you, you feel like yeah. you're like, you're you like, feel like you're, you're him. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you have that shot of Aired Wolf, literally like the close up on his face doing that and that was a pretty intense moment and it was really well done you've just reminded me that sequence in hungary we couldn't get the optex lens the ones that i've used in the uk they had mm -hmm. uh, they had a similar lens called a it's called a t-rex it's made okay. by pns technic and it, it actually has far more it's a bit bulky but it has far more controls and what it what it has sort of within the it has like these motors in the lens so that you can attach gears to the lens motors you can electronically control the horizon so you okay. can twist the horizon while the camera is electronically like using a a, a zoom controller follow focus so i remember now when uh, when we did that death scene the camera operator was operating the camera the focus puller was pulling focus and i was on the i had a little remote control to the little horizon thing so as at his moment of death and as he kind of his head went over like that as he died i kind of turned the horizon so it just sort of kept dutching around a yeah. little bit like that and then and then i think i went yeah. even, went, even went back a bit so it felt like sort of the camera was yeah the corkscrewing into his eyes as he was dying and it was, uh, it was clever <laughs> yeah that's so interesting so those tense moments um they're pretty great and in episode two of season five we get a few tense moments. In fact, uh, we'll have to ask you about working with Alexander Draymond as the director on this too. But at some points, it sort of felt like a scary show or like uh, an intense uh, sort of thriller. So what was it like to work with uh, Alexander Draymond as first directing debut on, on well, episode he, two? He was great. I mean, what can I say? He's, he's such a lovely man. Really just extremely bright, smart, really intelligent, very creative, you know, had super ideas you know he knows the show so well he knows the character right. so well it was uh it felt like a very natural step i mean tech technically he's you know he he's he he has a a lot of knowledge because he's seen everything go on around him for season after season after season but like anything until you've actually done it yourself 
you don't quite know yeah. how things work. So, you know, there was, you know, we spent a bit of time just talking through all the equipment, technical stuff, what cameras, what certain things can do and what certain things can't do. You know, if you want to track around someone, you need to use this bit of equipment. And if you want to start here and finish there, then you need to use that bit of equipment. And, you know, there's a lot of mechanical sure. stuff like that. He was extremely well prepared. He kind of, he, he, broken down the script scene by scene, knew exactly what he wanted from each scene, the characters, the camera work. And he was Alex's kind of directing mentor. Yeah. So to help him kind of get, you know, work out just simple stuff, blocking eye lines, you know, all the kind of mechanical stuff that's really quite boring, but, but needs to be done. Clearly there are a lot of scenes where he has to direct himself. And actually those are right. the scenes then, um, you know, when he was in his own scenes, then Andy would come in, Andy Hay, the director, would come in and, and direct those scenes because it was, you know, Alex would act and then he'd want to come back and check the playback and then he'd go back and act and he'd want to check the playback. And oh. it can be quite uh, disruptive. So if there's a director there just, that's just saying, Alex, your performance is great. Don't worry, move on. <laughs> that's crazy. It's like a it's like a player manager in baseball. That's crazy. <laughs> Super cool. Uh, and and actually, you know, some of those scenes were, so, were 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 really good fun to shoot because he would Alex would sort of let go a little bit. He you know he 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 direct the scene. He'd tell us you know he'd tell us all exactly what he wanted, and we'd do it. And because he was acting, he could just do his Beutred and we could sort of fulfill his visual cool. dreams. It was good fun. That's cool. He was a, a great presence on set when he was directing. I mean, it was wonderful to see him with his fellow actors, directing his fellow actors and, and just seeing the respect that they accorded him and how they listened to him sure. and how generous he was with them in terms of the way they would act with Uhtred. And it was a, quite a special... Um, set of relationships to witness i felt very privileged now a, a moment in episode three that i'd love to ask you about is during the battle um at effowich brita's daughter vivica walks through the battle just kind of casual stroll through the battle <laughs> and this is a moment as a viewer i am like holy crap like i'm on the edge of my seat like she's gonna about to get accidentally killed here could you talk about what it was like doing that sequence yeah, well i did a little i put a little thing on instagram yeah actually, mm -hmm. week about that. <laughs> just yeah, yeah, yeah. my shot of that thing happening so that you know the director wanted that feeling of vivica being in a you know in a sort of fugue state not right. aware of what's going on around her kind of an untouchable and you know whether it's a question of the battling soldiers are le are leaving her alone or whether it's just good fortune that she can walk through it we shot her point of view with a lens baby basically it's like a little toy plastic camera lens really? that attaches to the front of a camera and you can you can bend it around so it, it changes the it changes the field of focus i mean it's like a kind of say it's quite a cheap a cheap effect but in the right hey. done in the right way it can be really really effective and we used it actually in we used it in episode five last season that when Ethelred's when he wakes up mm -hmm. and he kind of regains consciousness briefly and he looks up and he sees all the eldermen all all gathered around his bed right and so for his point of view I use a lens baby for that because it made the you know just sure. made sort of faces feel a bit distorted and the backgrounds look a little like they're kind of streaming away from them and it just felt like 
someone's someone's point of view as they're waking up out of a you know out of a coma but right. um so we use that for um for the Vibica's walk obviously it was a stunt double from behind when we followed her but anyway so we use a stunt double following her because she was obviously going into all the battle and the choreograph sure. and then we use the real actress leading her so on her face kind of coming back around right. and slow motion uh you know but a lot of stuff where you got props people just out of set throwing things in front of the camera oh, and hits her hair and hits her hair but it's all done it's all done right by the camera so again it's something if you were there on set looking at it you you'd laugh you'd think it all looks so silly really i mean the way the way filmmaking done that sort of when you break that wall of actually how things are done it's quite laughable but actually but knowing what knowing how it's going to translate on the screen is what what makes it work right and when she jumps off the steeple there down to her yeah. death or the steeple whatever it was the, the yeah. building she jumps down there's a moment where the camera feels like it's falling with her yeah so i'm glad you noticed that now i'm going to send you that picture too um oh, cool. and that was an idea that i had because I, I did that on strike i did that on strike back we had a we had a scene where one of the Navy SEAL SWAT team heroes mm -hmm. jumps off the upper gallery of balcony of a shopping mall and just jumps down like three three balconies firing her AK-47 as she's going and, okay. <laughs> and grabs a rope on the way down and swings in magically and it's all... It sounds amazing. It's all no. <laughs> so what we did with that, and she was on a wire, and okay. uh, I I had a a stuntman cameraman on a wire next to her, filming. You know, so he was doing the drop with her, filming her as she went down. So you got that feeling of kind of the camera flying through space, but it was operated by a cameraman. So I thought that would be a great way to do the um, Vivica Four. So we had the stunt double on her wire and then um levy levanti who's yep. a stunt overall stunt coordinator who's a good cameraman in his own right he had a wire rigged above her and okay. so he was on that wire with the camera and when she jumped he jumped and he you know followed her down very cool Film, filming her as as uh, as she went and you know it's only a few frames but it oh you know, the yeah fact, the fact that you noticed it means that it, it worked <laughs> Yeah, I think sometimes it's those small little moments that add a lot of the intensity. I mean, another small one I think of is actually the um, first scene in the first episode you directed on The Last Kingdom, episode one, season four, on that Bebenbur beach battle, when um, Joseph Milson as Elfrich looks toward Bebenbur. Yeah. It shows him looking, then there's like a quick zoom in on Bebenbur, which I okay. thought added like a really a sense of urgency to him. Okay. I don't know if you remember that. Well, I do. I mean, I that probably would have been a, a post-production thing. That was a post-production thing. All of yeah. Bebenberg, that was all just a CGI right. creation there. So I think they would have just done a digital, you know, just done some... Probably a digital Zoom. Yeah, yeah. A punch in that. that's something that, you know, they just enhanced the moment in the edit. I think we did shoot all that, that stuff on Zooms just for, mm -hmm. just for ease of... Um, moving around on the sand because you know you don't want to change lenses when you're working on beaches because you know, sure. the sand and the wind gets in so so maybe you know maybe one of the operators just 
had thought, oh, this would be nice. Let's do a little punch. So maybe it was an in-camera thing. I, I don't, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> it was a kinetic scene though, just as far as, I mean, it's, it feels like there's just people running the whole time and, yeah. and, and going with that though. So it was great. It was really, it was a really very well-coordinated, well-planned scene that again, that took months and months of planning, but it right. shot it very efficiently mm. and very quickly. And, and we're very lucky with the weather as well. I have to say, you know, you, you just don't know. In the northeast of England, it could have been blowing a gale one minute, brilliant sun the next. But we had two days of, you know, bluebird skies and clear sunshine. So it made, <laughs> yeah. made it, it, it really helped. You know, that was kind of 90% of the work done. From my point of view, I, the problems that I anticipated very early on, because I mean, we shot that in May, I believe. And we first went to scout the location in January and started to work it out because it was a whole arena there where you were going to, you know, the battle you're seeing everywhere. And it was a beach and the tide was coming in. My, I knew that the, if we could solve the problem of where equipment was going to be put, then we'd have, we'd be able to make the scene because the, great difficulty with filmmaking these days is that there's so much gear everybody brings mm. so many lens you know just trolleys of this and video that and lights and props and there's just stuff everywhere and it's always getting into shot and you're constantly you know when you turn the camera and you're constantly having to move things and it, it's a real time killer that so i said i said look we have you know to get the scene to work the way we want it to work, there cannot be anything on the beach. You can't have, we can't have any equipment there. We have to be able to turn the camera around and be able to shoot. The locations department found a, a, a kind of a little, kind of a sand dune on the edge, just as it's going up the cliff with a kind of a nice little dip. It was quite big. It was probably about 20 by 10 feet. And from where you were standing on the beach, you couldn't see that you couldn't see it because you would see right over the top. And literally, they planned it very well, and everything went into that dip. <laughs> so okay, it meant gotcha. that we had a we had a we had a completely free field of view to point three cameras anywhere we wanted at any time of day, whenever the director felt like it, and and it just it enabled us to shoot so quickly. That just have not just not having any any stuff to move around and hide in the back of shot made the, really made that scene uh, what it was. I have to say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so a lot of what you do too. I mean, there's there's a lot of technical stuff. There's a lot of logistical knowledge, and then and then there's also you're looking at it, I guess, as art too, right? You're trying to make it look um, yeah. artistic. So I mean. Uh, that that's a lot kind of to juggle and handle like i know and often that's the sort of the last the last, the last thing i think about yeah <laughs> yeah the art comes last i i i have to i mean i don't want to sound glib but i try and sort of think that well you know that's kind of built into my dna so i don't have okay. to i don't have to think about it because i know that's just going to come out by osmosis it's just going to happen naturally okay. yeah but what i do have to think about is logistics and schedule and technical stuff that that requires other people's uh, input and getting the job done right. So that's right. I think about all of that stuff, and then I just trust my instincts that the art will find cool. its way, find its way out in its own way. How did you uh, get into this then, or what what drew you to to your 
current profession then? With Last semester at college, I went to UC Berkeley. Actually, I was a history major at oh. UC Berkeley. I had nothing, you know, I had no visual background at all. I was, it was very academic. Through various things, I kind of got interested. I kind of picked up a stills camera and started taking pictures. And, and it just became... I just kind of sort of almost took over my life, really. I thought, I wow. love that idea of seeing things and then developing it and getting the pictures back and composition and lighting. And and I thought, well, you know, somehow I've got to do something with this because it really felt, it was the first time in my life I'd felt something that really kind of pulled at me. Cool. So when I left college, I became a photographer's assistant. I got a job with a photographer and I didn't know anything at all, but, you know, through, I just met this chap and he did a lot of corporate work and, but it was good experience. And I, you know, I learned all about cameras and basic lighting. And then I, I saw Barry Lyndon <laughs> at the movie theater, the Kubrick. Okay. And then when I saw Barry Lyndon, I thought that was the, that was the real epiphany. I thought that is what I have to do. You know, that is kind of what, the mean that's what the meaning of all of this is is to be the cinematographer on a wow. movie like Barry Lyndon that's all I've wanted cool. to do and then I knew so then I kind of found my way into film crews as a camera trainee as a clapper loader and I was I was just making my way I was starting to focus and work as a focus puller and then I got a place at the National Film School in England cool. uh, on the cinematography course and and that was sort of it, really. That, that kind of got me going. But Barry, awesome. Lind Barry Lyndon, and you know, it's great because I, every time I'm on set on uh, The Last Kingdom doing a candlelit scene, I think here I am making Barry Lyndon. There you <laughs> go. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and you mentioned earlier, too, how that painting had inspired one scene in The Last Kingdom. Do you ever get inspired by other paintings uh, for The Last Kingdom or anything else? Yes, yeah, very much. I love going to galleries and, you know, it's not, there's nothing specific, but I often see things like when I was in Budapest in prep, doing prep for series five last year, I got there two weeks before everything shut down. The second uh, time. Okay. So I had like a two week window of kind of artistic pleasure. And I was able to get to the National Gallery there and they had a, a, a Dura exhibition. And I don't know whether you know who's, I mean, it is very, very fine pencil work the detail and the kind of crystallization of the scenes he, way he rendered his scenes was very striking. And it immediately just sort of influenced me in the way I was thinking about that series of The Last Kingdom and those, those very finely kind of etched interiors where the, you know, you see the texture and the woodwork and the candlesticks, mm. the doubloons and the plates and the bed sheets. And so I thought, I you know, that's what I thought I really wanted to do this time is you know have create pictures that you could really feel you know cool. you could reach and you could just sense the sense the three-dimensionality and the the sensory nature of the subjects and you know that was just from going to see a, a Jura exhibition at the at the National Gallery in Budapest but I mean like many cinematographers you know I love all the Dutch paintings and, sure. and Bruegel's and Vermeers and Rembrandts and House and just just beautiful light just if you just want to look at kind of classic beautiful lighting you can't go wrong there I've always been sort of drawn to the pre-Raphaelite those okay. British Raphaelite painters of the late late 19th century again just for that sort of fantastic not fan not fantastic in a sort of brilliant way but fantastic in a I mean that in a sort of 
fantasy driven uh, state of mind and that the way they could capture sort of mystical moments mm. with lighting and nature and that or that sort of informed a lot of the way I see the world cinematographically too. Um, cool. But there's no nothing hard and fast. I tend to just yeah. respond to what happens often, just what happens to be around me at the time. And I know James Northcote too. Uh, he James Northcote who plays Aldhelm. He yes. you know, he's always yeah, taken photographs we had a we would chat a lot because he had a you know we'd always talk cameras because he had his old twin lens rolleiflex and i have one too and he loves his film cameras and and yeah no he's a good photographer and really enjoys it yeah one scene definitely want to talk touch on here is that brita utrid finale sort of brita's finale um in their little battle at Lloydus, which was a super nostalgic scene for Last Kingdom fans or a location for Last Kingdom fans. Um, could you talk a little bit about the approach to capturing that scene on camera? Yes. How should I say? Kind of it goes back to what I what I kind of touching on early with all the other yeah. big set piece scenes. It's you know, it's the kind of the logistics first. And once I know about the location and the set, then I can start thinking about how I want it to look, or rather, sure. I know how I want it to look, and therefore you kind of make sure that the design incorporates that. So uh, it started off with that sense that uh, it goes over quite a long period of time, that scene. So, you know, yeah. by the time Uhtred arrives, he meets Breda, they fight, he nearly kills her, but he doesn't. They have their reconciliation, a moment of perhaps the, they finally buried all their differences and then right. killed. So it's, you know, it takes place over a kind of a long period of time. And I had the sense that it'd be nice to suggest that passage of time with the light changing. So it sort of starts mm. during the day and the light drop and it, and it kind of drops and goes through sort of sunset to evening. So you don't, it doesn't feel like he's just got there, they fight, she, she dies, that's it, you know, move on. Um, and I, so kind of emotionally, I thought that might add to the, the pathos of the scene as if when they meet, it's quite strong sunlight, but by the time she's dead, it's the, it's the end of the day and she's the last bit of sunlight and low, low light that's just kind of picking out what you want to see. Once I knew that, then when we were kind of location scouting with the director and, and Dominic, the designer, we kind of, we, we knew that it was all going to be, you know, there was a big farm estate and we knew that we'd build it somewhere in there. We found, uh, Dominic, the designer, found a nice kind of glade uh, with trees on one side and kind of open reeds on the other with a nice, background and sort of brambles and so it kind of worked quite well right then I knew which way the sun was going where it was going to be at which times of day and where we would have the sun and at what point we would lose the sun and when I'd need to start lighting it I asked Dominic you know because you're kind of building this from scratch build it on this particular orientation you know on this mm. trajectory that'll enable us to use the sun and lighting to best effect assuming the blocking was going to be fairly linear along the along the ruins of the chapel which it was so once i knew that was happening i worked very closely with the with the with jolt the gaffer and we 
we hid a lot of lights in the sort of thick trees to the right of the set as you're looking at it from Uhtred's point of view so that as the sun went into those trees I'd be able to start lighting you know bringing kind of strong light sort of evening sunset light in from that side of the set and then when we we shot it over two days uh and I you know again I said that you know we should make sure we kind of start filming at this time of day to take advantage of sure. that, you know, the light for when when Uhtred first approaches through the trees and then by the time when we get into their first fight the sun was going to be over at that angle which would work well right. um and then as it sets as it sets when she's on the ground and she's you know he's kind of bashing her and bashing yeah. her and bashing her oh, and then, yeah. then he stops. That's when I was able to start lighting it in to kind of start giving it that sort of sunset feel. And then the next the next day when we came back, we had to kind of start the day when it was sunnier. So I was able to kind of flag the sun off and keep my own lights in to kind of continue the feel mm. from the previous. So when it gets to the climax of the scene and Stiora yep. shoots, we were back to sort of like beautiful sunset light again. And that looked, gotcha. looked amazing that, you know, it worked. It just went, it went, how can I say, it just went perfectly to plan and, and the lighting, the kind of, the, the journey of the lighting felt like it reflected the journey of their spirit and her passing. Right, right. And that was really my approach to the scene. I mean, shooting wise, it was, you know, it was interesting. They, they Levy had um, rehearsed it with stunt doubles. Okay. Big fight. But Alex and Emily had rehearsed themselves so well that right. they, didn't, they didn't want to use the stunt doubles. They wanted to do it themselves. And they did. So it meant we could photograph it without any trickery or having to hide anybody yeah. or cameras behind people. It was all done absolutely for, for real. I think the fight worked really you know couldn't That's have awesome. been, couldn't have been better but it's for that reason it was quite fun doing those flash we had there were those flashbacks flashback so we had to like those little moments of kind of recreating i was gonna ask if you like of, watch um, those scenes again and, yeah we watched right. those scenes and that and that scene at the very end uh when he's when he's got the funeral pyre and and he's looking oh. you know that yeah. scene at dusk and he thinks he sees her i actually had we had a a gigantic 20k light uh, uh -huh. like a really big big lamp and I, I put it i put it literally right behind her so it was kind of six feet away from her back so she was blocking it and then you know it felt like you know you got all that light sort of pushing around gotcha. behind us so yeah it yeah and a heavenly glow for that moment oh, very cool um, very cool what i felt too as far as the camera operation during their their fight um, how especially when Uhtred is just bashing her her sword just getting um, the, the flashbacks kind of, out of her just getting the flashbacks uh he's kind of the camera's kind of moving with him it's sort of this uh, yeah. emotional feel that's created because obviously for Uhtred it's such an emotional moment well it's just great camera operating Ian Clark is a camera operator and he's worked on that show for a lot longer than I have <laughs> he knows it he knows it better than me he and the camera and the actors are like one one thing inseparable unit they just work so gotcha. well together that you know he just he just did what felt right at the time the camera and his instincts are always absolute uns, 
unswervingly correct. Yeah, really well done that scene. And, and when we talked to Chaz Bain, um, he talked about a lot of being the director of photography involves a little bit of luck sometimes. Yeah. And it sounds like you meticulously plan out the show before, like way before you start filming. But were, are there ever any times where something went unexpected or you captured a moment that you didn't expect that ended up becoming sort of magical or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that? That, that happens all the time. It happens all yeah. the time, mainly just with the daylight, because you can't, you know, you can plan the logistics, but you can't plan. You don't know what the light is going to be like on the day sure. six months ahead of time. And, you know, working in Hungary in winter, where you, where you get the, that low winter light and the sunsets and the beautiful magic hour, there, there are moments that, you know, you just see it and you have to respond to it there and then, and it becomes quite a kind of an epic epic moment but although actually I tell you what <laughs> there is there is one thing that I would that does a lot of the scenes that we did um I think a lot of that stuff at the end begin around the frozen lake when they're in Runcorn when they're waiting mm -hmm. for the boats to come in that was I mean completely unpredictable that it, it had snowed there was right. like a snowfall and extreme cold and clear sky so there was everything was covered in that poor frost right poor, poor that's the english word h-o-a-r it's called not the other kind okay. of so, it's <laughs> poor frost. so you know it made the surfaces it, it looked incredible i mean you couldn't have you couldn't totally. have, you couldn't have bought that for a million dollars that and we had Ooh. three three days of that consistent look and it just elevated those scenes yeah. beyond any expectation and that that was pure luck that's awesome. Uh, frozen lake, the, the yeah. frost trees, all the surfaces, the soldiers with the, their costumes all snowed and frozen and icicles coming off the, you know, you can't, all that, totally. it's impossible. You can't predict, and, it, and you, and when you're there, you just photograph the hell out of it because you know it's, it's great value on the screen. But in terms of a, an accident, a sort of uh, a happy accident. A happy uh, accident is uh, Bob Ross would say. <laughs> the, the, you know the scene in I think it's episode two where Sig Trigger is kind of he's banished from Efferwick. He leaves Efferwick yeah. after, and he goes out into the field and he looks back oh, and yeah. there's that big kind of moonlight in the sky there. Yes, it's yeah. Awesome. It's like awesome a really kind of epic. Well, I mean that was a bit of a mistake of mine really. But <laughs> The precursor to that, what we shot on the same night was Uhtred and the gang arriving in Efferwich. Mm -hmm. Episode three, the when Uhtred has the has the heart to heart conversation with Sig Trigger on the ramparts after the battle. But it was stuff from various episodes, all filming outside the Efferwich gates at night, basically. That's right, it. gotcha. And I had a big 18K lamp on a cherry picker on a hill right at the very, very far end of the field so I could get some backlight on the horses as they rode up. And actually, because we shot it all, it's all part of the sequence where the beloveds come and invade Efferwich. But when, when we set up for that scene with um, horses arriving and we shot Sig Trigger leaving at the same time, the camera's on a crane. And as it, as it came down, well, that my big beautiful light was right in the middle of frame and 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 i couldn't you know i couldn't tell the operator well frame it out because it was impossible to frame out but right. what happened was that 
just this mist came in that night. It was quite rare. I mean, a very unusual, it must have been a transition between like a cold front and a warm front. And suddenly the whole field was just covered in this blanket of very still mist. And when it went across the lamp, it just made the lamp look like the moon. <laughs> so, oh, so, oh, cool. so just enjoyed, the, you know, didn't try and fight him, just framed the whole thing, framed the lamp right in the middle of shot, right oh, yeah. behind um, Big Trigger. And I mean, it's That's... way too bright. I mean, it looks, you know, it doesn't look anything like the moon at all. But oh. in that particular moment, it's quite a, like a very heightened emotional beat. And That's I think cool. you can sort of get away with a stylized bit of lighting like that that sort of makes yeah. no sense technically but sort of the if the audience wants to believe it's the moon well then they can well, it was I'm going, we to, did we it were going to it. <laughs> it was a it was a i wouldn't say a mistake of mine but it was something that i hadn't quite anticipated being the case sure and we talked to ace about that scene too and we had him on the podcast and you know, we talked about how cool that moment was and then later there's another cool one where he's standing on a cliff and i don't know if it's a drone that comes and zooms in on him but yeah um that was a really cool moment too um, yeah, that, that was the second unit second unit, second unit yeah for that. stuntman he directed that second unit gotcha and that whole effuich scene too we thought like where the people are crawling or like climbing over the walls yeah. It was such a cool feel. It almost felt like there were ants like just in, infesting the city or something. It was, it was a really yeah, we, cool. We looked a little bit at, looked at World War Z for that. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. Zombies are kind of a, uh, going into Jerusalem and kind of had, they wanted it to have that feel. It was like a quiet build to this intense moment that's about to happen and uh, it was super, super well done. Yeah. That was quite, that, I know technically that was quite challenging because we shot a lot of that stuff, that a lot of that attack on the drone and uh, ah. we couldn't use the big, big bird octocopter drone that takes the Alexa because it was too close to all the actors. So we had to use the little DJI Inspire, which quite a slow lens on that um, in terms of, you know, so for night, you know, to use that on night exteriors, that little inspire needs a lot of light, you know, a lot, a lot of light. I had to really light up that set. It's almost yeah, like, gotcha. like Christmas to get, <laughs> enough, get enough exposure for the, um, for the little drone. But, uh, you know, that's just a sort of technical challenge, but uh, I don't think, you know, it looks like regular, looks like normal moonlight. Yeah. But, but it, it, totally was really, does. it was really, it was really bright, you know, it was the way I used to light things 20 years ago when we were oh, shooting on 100, 100 ASA films. So, you know. Now, looking back at your time on the show, are there any moments that stick out to you as like your favorite moments or, or things that you were proud of, most proud of that you captured? Oh, gosh. I'd say there are three things that stand out. I think that whole sequence on the boat going to Bebenberg that we did yeah. in series four, which was the combination of filming for real on the lake and filming on the tank with the green screen and the sun and and seeing, you know, how difficult it was to get that right. You know, we always had to keep moving the, you know, I said we had to keep turning the boat around for every shot so that the light would always be right. Um, and then right. Right. very difficult sort of green screen job as well. And I was, and then shooting all the plates. And I was very proud to see that all cut together and see how sort of seamless it was between yeah. in everything we did. And actually within that sequence, probably my, my favorite shot of all times is that 
there's the the real shot that we did on the lake. I think it would have been the end of episode, maybe the end of episode one when Utrecht yeah. holding up his sword and the amber yes. is lit, and he, you know, you can see the landscape and the background inside oh, yeah. Devonberg, and it just, you know, called back to episode one. Yeah, it's beautiful light, and again, I was. It would have been really well. I planned it really well because I knew exactly what time of day we were going to shoot and what orientation the boat needed to be in to get that shot. And it all worked just like that. And the camera was in the right place. The light was in the right place. Everything yeah. fitted together. It was, it was just be a good feeling. Great. I love to see, I love to look back at that shot. And then I think that whole, that, that sort of climax of episode eight in um, this current series, that long intrigue scene with the King and everyone trying to persuade him to, to send the you know send his forces up to Bebenberg and and his refusal to do so the challenge was to make something visually interesting out of something that potentially on the page could be really boring you know 10 right. pages of dialogue it's cuz enough to send anybody to sleep but you know so it had to however good the writing is if it doesn't you know if it's not visually stimulating it's not going to sustain the interest of the audience so I, I you know I had to work really really hard to come up with a, a lighting and camera blocking plan with the director yeah. that would kind of sustain the, the drama. And that worked very well. So again, very gratifying to see that scene played back. Um, yeah, it's a great scene, yeah. But I think the end, you know, the other standout scene for me is the one that you brought up earlier, that Ethel Red's death and- Yeah, oh, series gorgeous four. scene. Really, again, technically and artistically. I think that's when I, that's, those are the things that stand out to me that give me the greatest pleasure is when I can combine being a technician and an artist, not, not one or the other, but the two together. Right. <laughs> and, and what I want to, in that scene specifically too, other I love the moment when they take the bandage off and you sort of zoom in on the wound on the back of his head um, and, and, and King Edward Timothy Innes is in the background to, um, and that kind of zooms in on him when he yeah. realizes yeah. the significance of the situation. That was awesome. That was incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> I mean, it looks, I'm glad it looks easy and you didn't think about it, but no, you know, yeah. that lens, because we use that T-Rex lens so we could get the, follow his head right up mm -hmm. and then it's a very, very slow lens. So it means, you know, normally the lenses we use are like a T2. So means it's fast. So you, you don't need much light to get a, get an exposure, which, which is necessary in those sort of low lit candlelit situations. But on with that T-Rex lens, it's a an F8 lens. So you need two, four, 16 times as much light to get an exposure on that lens as you would on the normal lenses we were using. So for that scene, we'd shot, you know, we'd shot all the normal drama on our normal lenses, but then I had to get the T-Rex out to do that scene and because you know usually you use those lenses for close-ups which is quite easy because you can it's easy to get light in for a close-up but that was a really wide shot and you sort of you saw the whole room and you saw all the right. elder men all arranged around and it was quite a small room as well just for that one shot i had to bring in the the biggest lamps that we had on the truck and they were gotcha. just off the side of the camera just bashed right into all the faces and had to put a load of lights up in the eaves hidden just just to get the exposure 16 times as bright as normal for it to look the same. And actually, if you look very closely, what 
what that means is the actual candle, you know, when you see a candle in shot, it looks a lot dimmer than normal because the lens has had to close down a lot to accommodate the extra exposure on the faces. But you can't make a candle any brighter. The candle flame is always going to be right. the same brightness. So that's the candle flame is, is 16 times less bright than it would normally be. Right. I tried to keep the candles as invisible as possible in the background because I knew that would be a bit of a giveaway if you saw them. Um, but there is yeah. the odd, there is the odd one in there. So that reminds me of a moment in the first episode of season four when Uhtred's alone in his hall, and he's sitting at the fireplace. And I don't know if this is how you guys did it, but it looks like all the candles in the fireplace are extinguished. And like while that happens, the natural light comes in to show the passing of time that he's been sitting at this fire contemplating all night. Is that how you yeah. guys did it? Yes, we did that. I had a special lamp rigged up with a you know special spotlight going into a mirror to mm -hmm. kind of create a shaft of sunlight we had that on a dimmer as that transition was happening i dimmed that light up to kind of create sunlight and dimmed the sort of everything else down now what yeah. i'm trying i can't remember now whether did the candles go I in think all... did they actually extinguish during that i shot think so I, so i, I think thought they uh, did i think what we did then was we must have done um two passes i think that's what we did. we did two passes on the shot one with the candles lit and one with mm -hmm. the candles unlit so wow, in post, okay. what they did was they took you know they did the shot with the transition the lighting transition and then they took the candles and then um and then uh comp the two candles them, yeah. to to make them look like they were extinct extinguishing yeah. themselves I I thought it was a creative way to show the passing of time. It was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that was an idea that I, you know, it was something I thought would be good to do for that. But it took a, it was a very particular type of lamp to do to get that effect. It was a, it's mm -hmm. called a, a mole beam, which is an old fashioned type of Klieg light, the type of spotlights that you would have outside the movie theaters in the forties. You know, the big right, right. They would have the big shafts of light going into the sky, and then when you shine that into a mirror, you reflect it into a mirror, it creates an even more distinct shaft of light. Okay, cool. Ooh, one thing we forgot to ask too was, was Iceland. What about when uh, Brita in Iceland, was there anything unique with that? that Not really, <laughs> we just filmed it in a quarry. We just yeah, okay. In quarry and, under, and most, you know, uh, quarry in a lake and uh, you know 90 percent of those shots is like great cgi you know great backgrounds what, what, yeah. we, what we filmed was pretty small <laughs> right, wasn't, right there wasn't that much to it um and it was lovely that kind of opening scene where she was awesome. along the rocks and and you know i had a little bit of fun with lighting to kind of create a volcano effect lighting on breeders cool. to say if the thing erupts but it would have been nice to have had a bit more time to do that we could have sort of had bigger shots with more extras but you know we always knew it was going to be a big cgi heavy gotcha gotcha and do you have any um anything exciting coming up here in the future i know uh, you mentioned to us you're working in boston at the university I'm working in boston teaching here at the moment um i'm waiting to hear on some filming work over the summer i can't say anything yet right i don't right. know but i've been you know i've been had having been reading scripts and having meetings so We'll see cool. if something, see what, see what comes up. <laughs> Very exciting. And what kind of career goals do you have? Uh, is there anything that you haven't done yet that you still really like to do? Well, I mean, to be honest, I've taught a lot over the years. I mean, I've been going back into the National Film School 
since the kind of mid 2000s doing masterclasses and, and workshops. And I, I, you know, when this opportunity in Boston University came up, I thought, well, it was just felt like the right time in my life to, rather than to think so much about myself and my own career and what I've done, because I feel like I've done so many wonderful things that I wanted to really, you know, I, I know how hard it is because I've been there. I know how difficult it is to get started in this business. And, you know, any help you can get is, is, is really of such good value that I thought, well, I want to give it back now and, and help the next generation find their way. That's really my goal now is to try and get us, get as many young, talented cinematographers into the industry as possible. And, Very cool. uh, and if I can keep picking up some interesting filming work in my time off, then that's just a, it's a win-win situation. Cool. But in terms of what, no, I, I, I have to say, you know, I think, gosh, I, you know, would I like to go and do the next Marvel movie? And to be honest, I mean, if the opportunity came up, I'd, I'd certainly consider it, but sure. I love what I've done and I love the people I've worked with and I know I'm going to work with them again and I'm, I'm sort of extremely happy with the cool. quality and level of work that I've achieved in my career and, and now it's it's great to be able to sort of spread my wings a little bit and, and, um, and as I said give something back to to the industry yeah absolutely thanks for for chatting with us today I mean we uh one of the big things we love about the last kingdom is uh the the cinematography and we've always loved the feel yeah. and and the look of the show and feels and, real um, yeah and a lot of my favorite uh moments are actually a lot of the ones that you've done especially that like visually episode one of season four i just i love the i just love the sunlight and the amber hilts and all that fun stuff like that's when i think of the show like those are that's a moment i think of like visually i think of the ethelred scene i think of actually episode six i know that wasn't one you did but when they're uh Sitchiger's death and just yeah. like the the frost and the lighting and the dark like there was a lot of just visually awesome moments from the last yeah. kingdom so it's it's great to be able to talk with you and uh yeah. about yeah. that today it's, it's been great talking to you I, I don't think i've ever talked about the last kingdom as much as this <laughs> oh yeah well well again thanks tim and everybody listening we appreciate you listening check out tim's links down below um he put some great behind the scenes stuff um, from his works on his Instagram and uh, definitely check out his website down below as well. Anything else do you want to say uh, to the last kingdom fans, Tim? Well, to Bebenberg and, and, uh, yes. and I can't, I can't wait to see the movie. You know, they've just, yeah. shot, they've just yeah. got a movie. It's going to be incredible. And Ed, Ed Bazalgette directed that. So yeah, it's going to be great, you know, on, not from a filming point of view, but I, you know, as a historian, you know, from university, yeah. I did the, I did early medi medieval history. That was my kind of concentration. So I know the whole period very well. You know, Bernard Cornwell's books, and I read his, I read a lot of his other books yeah. as well. Yeah. It's so, so historically accurate. And so what's cool. fascinating is the way he has this ability to interweave fictional characters, completely made up characters, into into events that really happened and you sort of walk away yeah. feeling that these are real people than it really happened. I so, know. And I go back and I read my history books and I said, well, hang on a minute, where's Utrecht? He's meant to be in. Yeah, he's yeah. He's meant to be here. <laughs> but I know that he's not there. But I sort of yeah. I've almost been, you know, tricked into believing that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it's that's the other cool part about the show is this show reveals a very interesting 
time period and, and piece of history that yeah. I think before the show was not talked about much. I mean, Athelflaed yeah. and King Alfred and Edward, sure. um, these people who did amazing things for their time, especially Athelflaed. Athelflaed. I mean, it's well, cool. You know, that you know, whole to... storyline, the White Queen of Mercia is absolutely historically, factually correct the way yeah, it was. It's, it's amazing. So, and that's cool too, I guess, for you being a historian to be a part of something that teaches other people um, about this amazing history, yeah. which is cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and as we always say, goodbye and destiny is all. Destiny.